Welcome to The Get, the podcast for enterprise leaders, delivering timely insights for today's global economy and tomorrow's competitive advantage. I'm your host, Chris Kane, president of the Center for Global Enterprise. Today, we're going to focus on restructuring business models in a U.S.-China decoupling economy. For the last 40 years, the United States and China, the two largest economies in the world, have been leading forces for global economic integration. Today, both are signaling their interest in decoupling major parts of their economies from the other. The impact on the global economy is to be determined, but the need for CEOs to assess the impact of this decoupling is immediate. In addition, the pandemic has driven home the danger of merely building business models that rely primarily on low-cost suppliers located half a world away. Business is now operating in a new global environment, reshaped by dramatic shifts in customer behaviors, regulatory restrictions, and capital markets. The enterprises that will succeed in this environment are the organizations that find new ways of doing business to develop happy and loyal customers. To discuss the challenge and perhaps the opportunity this decoupling presents to CEOs and business leaders, we sit down today with Doug Haynes, Managing Partner at Council Advisors, and Dave Kapos, Partner at Cravath, Swain & Moore, and former Director of the Patent and Trademark Office of the United States Government. Doug and Dave, welcome. Doug, perhaps we can begin with you. You have worked a long time with business leaders and with CEOs in particular on a global scale. How serious an impact does a decoupling of the two largest economies in the world have on a company's business model. Well, Chris, in your introduction, you said, what challenges does this present and maybe what opportunities? And I'll be frank and say, I think that the challenges far outweigh the opportunities. If we think about business as having maybe four components here, one would be the markets you serve, another would be physical goods supply chain or value chain. A third would be services supply chain or value chain. And then the last, which has become much more important, is the software or the intellectual property supply chain. The decoupling of these economies and a lot of the knock-on effects of what's happening in the geopolitical realm at the moment have, in my view, almost entirely negative effects on all of the above. Let me take the stance of a U.S. company for a moment, but we could look at it from the perspective of a Chinese company or European company as well. While accessing the domestic market likely won't change, accessing other markets is going to become more expensive. It will simply cost more to reach other markets. There'll be more regulatory barriers. There'll be likely more need for intermediates to support your business model locally, and all of which adds time and cost. Similarly. Supply chains that had been global over the last two or three decades are now fragmented. When I say supply chains, services supply chains, physical goods supply chains, and even software supply chains, that fragmentation also adds time and cost. The cost is not just in the form of increasing use of higher wage rate areas or higher factor cost areas, but there's also more loss and more storage costs and more transit-related costs. The markets are going to be more expensive for international companies, multinational companies. Markets will be more expensive to access other than home markets. 
and supply chains become more expensive to operate. Labor, goods, fees, and losses are all going to add up. So as I said, it's very difficult to find something good in here. The area that I think is the least certain are the services and software supply chains. As consumers in the West, we're already feeling the impact of the disruption of physical supply chains. Delays, stockouts, higher prices on everything from energy to automobiles to even basic home goods. The sequence of recent events makes the services and software supply chains a little more interesting because we now live in a world where people who are not tied to physical assets can work very effectively in a remote fashion. And as a result, those supply chains are much more fluid. Dave, Doug mentioned IP, intellectual property, and the changing environment that represents to a CEO and their business model. But for the last number of decades, we've had what I would call, and you might have a different point of view on this, a harmonization of intellectual property rights around the world. With a decoupling economy, does the environment for a CEO dealing with their IP as a core business component change? If so, what's the impact going forward for a CEO on a decoupling economy between China and the U.S. who have huge patent portfolios? I would say it's probably a decoupling in the economies in general will manifest itself in the IP world. I'll give you an example. We've worked for a long time, the U.S. has and other countries to encourage China to place a biopharma intellectual property regime that's similar to those in Europe and places like Japan and Korea and the U.S. that enables generics and research-based biopharmas to coexist and to each have a constructive place in the marketplace. With decoupling now, I see the regimes in China and the West drifting from one another and therefore less ability to work back and forth. So if the CFDA is working on different timelines and using different criteria than the FDA here in the U.S., how do the agencies constructively use the data that each one is producing for the deals that I work on. As another example, it's very common to have a China license to a biopharma IP to make a biologic or a drug, and then a rest of the world license. But that then requires the trading back and forth of the two licensees of regulatory data, because if something happens with a drug in China, you need to know about it in the rest of the world in order to be able to reflect it for the benefit of patients and the safety of patients. If we can no longer have assurance of being able to move regulatory data back and forth, it's kind of chaos, actually. I'm not sure how we're going to manage that in, in the legal regime or in the business regime. So the sharing of data and information between countries in a decoupled economy or a decoupling world, the trust of the data being held by another country is going to now create another dimension for a CEO to factor into and make it very difficult to have a smooth operational execution. There are a lot of fundamentals, we touched on some of a business that are going to need to be reassessed and maybe even changed in a decoupling economy. But Doug and, and Dave, if you had to think of the top two aspects of a business that you would encourage CEOs to bear down on right now, given these trends of a decoupling global economy, 
and perhaps a tension between the United States and China as it relates to regulatory compliance and regulatory oversight. What would the top two fundamentals of a business be that you would advise the CEOs to double down on? It's very difficult to pick two, but in the spirit of picking two, I would say risk management and supply chain robustness or security. And those are related, but they're different. Let me start with supply chain security. Supply chains got very lean over the last few years, and that was a very good thing in terms of productivity and you know efficiency, rapid movement of good services at a low cost. Events of the last few years have exposed just how lean those supply chains became, with very little redundancy, a lot of sole source agreements. Many supply chains just simply weren't robust. And not only did COVID expose this, but then now geopolitical instability and decoupling are exposing it further. And you can see the businesses that actually had built robustness into their value chain differentiated from those who hadn't. And the ones that had built robustness in look like higher cost operations now. Today, they look like operations that can actually deliver for customers. And I think we're going to see a return to a more robust way of management. I'm distinguishing risk management from having a robust supply chain because I'm looking at it from a financial point of view. The commitments made to shareholders, the commitments made to employees, the strength of the financial foundation of a company. The last few years have exposed companies who maybe carried additional costs, but they carried additional costs because they were managing for risk scenarios that other people just sort of looked at and said, well, it'll never happen. And then a lot of things that people couldn't imagine happening happened, and many companies were caught out, and some companies have even failed as a result. Dave, any thoughts? You know, what I look to, Chris, is for CEOs to bear down on right now, and this advice I'm giving to folks is don't depend on your trust-based IP-related relationships. So your joint R&D programs, you need to start looking at ways to reshore those or friendshore them or be prepared to move them quickly. Tech licensing, joint ventures, if you've got those that you're working on or that you're currently using in China as the countries decouple, you're going to have less trust and less assurance. The move data, knowledge depends on those JVs and tech licensing relationships and R&D relationships. If you have less assurance that you can move the stuff around, the products of those relationships, you need to be prepared to move the relationships as well. That's where I would have CEOs bearing down right now. The rise and value of intangible assets in business over the last 30 years has been enormous relative to the value of tangible assets. And I think Dave, you and Doug both touched on the fact that things like software and IP are now, in many cases, the core assets of an enterprise. And the ability to both protect but deploy those assets with agility in a decoupled economy changes dramatically. Any thoughts on that? The deployment of intangible assets and not only their efficiency, but how you protect them in a more decoupled environment? I'm going to sound for a minute like I'm not a fan of the growth of intangible assets, but that's not the case. I was surprised when I did a little research and found that, and I'm going to use U.S. data here again, U.S. publicly traded companies 
If you go back to 1980, where the rise of intangible assets in the business model began, 80% of U.S. publicly traded companies produced a profit consistently, meaning that they were basically profit-producing enterprises. If you roll that forward to 2020, U.S. publicly traded companies, only 20% produce profits routinely. Over this period of time, as intangible assets have grown as the core of business, growth has been prioritized over profitability very dramatically. The reason I raise this is that I think that this intangible asset economy we live in carried with it a real change, that it goes beyond just what the company delivers and what the nature of the employees are, but also what the basic proposition to shareholders has been. I do think, and I'm sounding a little doom and gloom as I say this, I do think that same period of time was the period of time when the economy and companies truly globalized. And it isn't surprising that growth was prioritized over profitability when the building of intangible assets tends to wash through the income statement, not get registered on the balance sheet. So it's a very, very different model. I think what we're seeing in the market just in the last few months is a reflection of a return to attention on profitability and a belief that long-term growth will not continue at the rate that it has been. And those, I think, have a very profound impact. The good news for companies is that intangible asset-based businesses, if managed for profitability, can become very profitable very quickly. But we're seeing a big pivot taking place literally as we speak, and it's affecting everything from the largest companies in the world all the way to startups. And there's just a change in stance about how to manage these businesses and what objectives to deliver to shareholders. Dave, you spent a lot of time advising companies about their intangible assets and both how to leverage them and also how to protect them. Any thoughts about the intangible asset environment in a decoupling economy? Yeah, I would focus on data there, Chris. You know, we've gotten so used to sharing data on a global basis, but we're now seeing the effects of decoupling with China putting in place very different data protection regimes from the US and even Europe to an extent where now I have to actively advise clients in deals to avoid data based in China because you can't be sure how to handle that, whether you'll be in compliance with Chinese law or whether you will literally be committing felony crimes that can result in your executives getting arrested in China. So this is very serious stuff that's a direct byproduct in the data world of decoupling in inconsistent legal regimes that are so inconsistent, in fact, that compliance with one almost guarantees non-compliance with others. As this decoupling takes place, and it won't take place entirely, there'll probably be more strategic sectors in the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy that will decouple, but some sectors that will remain integrated or at least connected. But other countries around the world who will be viewing this as separation, will try to figure out how to advantage themselves accordingly. In the Cold War era, these were called the Nine Aligned Nations who wanted to end up in between the two geopolitical philosophies and powers that had to organize the world. And now maybe we have an economic Cold War and non-aligned countries, or countries will want to be able to make the best of both the U.S. and Chinese economy, India, Brazil, South Africa, a number of countries who have tried to steer a path toward economic neutrality. And Doug, to your point about a return to profitability, let me ask you both now that you are a CEO and you have to figure out how to invest 
next year's CapEx funding or expenditures for your company, given this environment? Where would you invest your CapEx funds in order to advance your profitability as opposed to just focusing on growth? I think the answer is really different depending on the sector you're in and the nature of your model. So for a natural resource company or a heavier manufacturing company, you get a very different answer than you would get for, say, a software company. I do think there are a couple of common themes. I think we're going to see countries with more stable political environments and more stable international relationships become a lot more attractive. So as an example, um, and I'll, I'll take the software end of the spectrum. If you were to look at the growth in programming jobs, particularly in what you would call more modern platforms like AWS and .NET, Eastern Europe captured an unfair share of that growth over the last five or 10 years. If you've got any application that is written native to AWS, you can more or less bet that you've got programmers from Russia and the Ukraine somewhere in that code because on a cost quality basis, it's been such an advantaged group. We're seeing right now flight from those countries in two forms. One is companies pulling out and those range from US companies to European companies to even Eastern European founded third party consultants that are software producing are diversifying and moving out of those countries. And then second, we're seeing programmers flee on their own. It is estimated that Russia has lost 100,000 programmers who have simply left Russia without their companies having left because of what I mentioned before with the ability to work remotely and developers having access to development environments that are fully remote. You know, 100,000 developers have just individually abandoned their home country to work somewhere else. That sort of instability is going to be a very big deterrent for investment from countries that are geopolitically unstable or viewed as countries that can become unstable. So for an example, I'll use Eastern Europe again. At the moment, Armenia is a stable alternative to Russia, but I think the fear of Armenia becoming unstable in the future will keep it from enjoying much of next year's growth. Dave, intangible assets are characteristically profitable. Any thoughts about this return to profitability? And if you were investing CapEx money, where you would do it, given the environment we're seeing? Yeah, high margins uh, continuing for IP heavy companies in the 70% gross profit range or higher, which remains enviable. What I am telling companies in terms of investment is right now it needs to be on people and projects that are not dependent on countries that are decoupling. Because if you have dependencies on those countries, you've got really risky dependencies to deal with. And of course, IP is all about, you know, the result of people's minds, the things people think about and work on, whether it's programmers or scientists. If they're in China and their thinking is going to be captured there and the result of it not useful outside of the country, you have to ask yourself the question of what value you're getting from further investment there. And planning ahead in a decoupling world, not even that far ahead, just next year would tell you, you ought to be really careful about making investments and putting your investments in places where you're confident you'll be able to use them. 
Well, the environment for CEOs and business leaders clearly is trickier than it was five years ago. And it seems to me that it's only going to get trickier going forward, at least for the foreseeable future. Thank you both for your thoughts and insights today. You've got great experience on being both leaders in enterprises, but also advising them. But before we close, we like to use the last minute to give our listeners some strategic insights to think about. And we call it our Emerging Critical Issues Moment. So what I ask each of you to do is in one word or one phrase, please tell us what emerging issue do you see on the horizon that business leaders need to put on their radar? Dave, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure, Chris. I would use one word, DeFi. We thought it was like a fringe uh, libertarian thing five years ago when we started thinking about it in the legal world. It's becoming mainstream and holds tremendous promise in a lot of respects. So one word, DeFi. DeFi. Doug? The word that I would pick is culture. In an environment where you're going to have a lot of changes in the configuration of a business's supply chains, when you've got rapid changes in customer attitudes, you've got rapid changes in your employee base. I think we're going to see continued high turnover of employees. The only glue that holds a company together is culture. And it's one of the most important assets of an intangibles-based business. It's an asset that's often undermanaged and undertended. All right. Listeners, you heard it here first, DeFi and culture. Doug, let me thank you and Dave for your time today and your insights. We really appreciate you sharing with our listeners on The Get. You've been listening to The Get, sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise, celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformation issues.